Well, good morning again, dear church family. If you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, you'll know that we've been in a series that I'm really excited about. It's called Entrusted, where we're looking at this, this beautiful big picture Genesis to Revelation vision of what it means to be a human being who's made in the image of God and called back through Jesus Christ to be a steward, helping to extend God's mission of renewal to all things. It's a, it's a beautiful vision. Uh, Last week, we looked at what it means for us to be stewards of creation, stewarding creation. And this week, we're looking at something, a topic the Bible spends a lot of time on, and that is what does it mean to be stewards of our wealth, stewards of our money, stewards of everything that God has entrusted to us. And so to do that, we're going to turn to the Bible. So if you turn to page eight in your bulletins or in your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy, We've also printed there the text from Genesis 1 that we've read the last two weeks. I'm not going to read it again since we've already read it, but I will refer to it, and so just keep it handy there for reference. But let's read together from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 7 through 18. This is part of the speech that Moses gave uh, to his people, the people of Israel, just before they were about to enter into the promised land. If y'all think that I preach a long time, try reading the book of Deuteronomy. It's like a three-day sermon, okay? So we're not going to do that to you today. So let's read this together. Deuteronomy chapter 8, beginning at verse 7. Hear God's word. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with brooks, streams, deep springs, gushing out into the valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley, Vines, fig trees, pomegranates. Isn't that awesome? Pomegranates. Olive oil, honey. A land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing. A land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. I mean, what abundance. And when you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I am giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of the hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known, to humble and test you so that in the end it might go well with you. You might even say to yourself, oh, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But no, remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you even the ability to produce wealth. And so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors, as it is today. Family of God, this is the word of the Lord. I shared with you a little bit last week about my time serving as study assistant to the Reverend Dr. John Stott. And I promise I'm not going to talk about him every week. It just happens to be that there's another story about him that I'd like to tell you today. He was not only a great pastor and theologian, but he was also served as a chaplain to the Queen of England. Uh, which is obviously a very prestigious title, um, which didn't actually mean much, except when I was with him, we received an invitation to a garden party at Buckingham Palace. He received the invitation. I was his plus one. Um, So we attended this party. And you can, I mean, just any, any imagination within your creative visioning of what a party like that would be, 
it's true, right? Imagine going to a party in which the host owns everything, everything. And the host is not only the ownership of basically everything in England, but is also extremely liberal and generous with everything that she has. Imagine a party like that. I mean, just overflowing abundance, overflowing food, overflowing wine, overflowing cocktails, overflowing drinks, overflowing dessert, overflowing flowers, overflowing everything. And so there's nothing to do at a party like that except to just delight. No one is worrying about, is there going to be enough shrimp cocktail? Are there going to be enough cucumber sandwiches? You know, no one's worrying about any of that because there's just overflowing abundance and all there is to do is just to be there and delight. To delight in it, to share the joy and then to extend the joy to the other people around you. Now, unfortunately for me, uh, Uncle John was not interested in any of those delights. He was only interested in the rare birds that the Queen Elizabeth kept in the back part of the garden. So that's where he and I spent all of our time. <laughs> Sometimes you have to suffer for the Lord. <laughs> That's the picture I want you to keep in your mind as we talk about the Lord's goodness and generosity today. A party like that. There's a wonderful, actually, there's a wonderful video that has just been released recently on our wonderful Bible project uh, that talks about generosity and uses the same metaphor that says, when God creates the world, it is a glorious, overflowing, abundant feast, and those that he creates in his image are invited in. Creation is a party. Creation is a feast. It is overflowing with generosity. I love what Walter Brueggemann says. He says that Genesis 1 is a liturgy of praise for God's abundant generosity. A liturgy of praise. God creates, it is good. God creates, it is good. God makes, it is good. God creates, it is good. He blesses it, and then he gives it. He gives it to those that he loves, those men and women, boys and girls that he's made in his image. He gives it to them for us to enjoy and delight in everything in his creation, and then he tells us to keep the party going. He says in Genesis 1, be fruitful. Extend my generosity. Extend the party. Extend it to all creation. So that's the picture that the Bible opens with, with the creation itself as an abundant feast, with God as the fabulously wealthy host who is generous with all that he has and with us as the guests invited in with great honor and joy to receive all of his goodness and then to extend it to the world. What an amazing image. But that's not the world we have. The world that we have does not look like that. And I, and I don't care whether, I mean, even if you're not a Christian, you can admit that this is not the world that we have. And what Christians believe is that sin and evil and rebellion entered into the world and took this glorious party that God intended for all creation and turned it into a battleground. And, and specifically, and this is really what I want to focus on today, is that evil took and spread a couple of lies, lies, and planted them into the human heart. And these pernicious and pervasive lies we have inherited and that we carry in our own hearts as well, not only preventing us from being generous stewards, but even keeping us from enjoying the generosity of the host. So one of those lies, one of those lies that enters in is a lie of ownership. 
We didn't start this party. We don't own the goods. We did not convene all of this. We don't own any of this stuff. God is the host. We're the guests. And we're just called to come in and enjoy it. And yet what humans do is somewhere along the way, we begin to believe that we are actually the ones who are the owners. And this is, you know, can you imagine if I was at Buckingham Palace and I was looking around and saying, hey, I really like this place. I really like this palace. I really like this food. I I really like these grounds. I love those rare birds. You know what? This is mine. I'm going to keep this. And it's for mine to do with as I like. Whoa. How absurd. I'd be in the Tower of London, locked up right now, if I, had, if I had done that, right? But it's absurd, and yet the Bible says this is what we've done, is that human beings, at some point, a lie began to creep into the human heart that began to deceive us into believing that we are not the guests, we're actually the hosts, we're the owners. And so it began with Adam and Eve, our first parents. They began to look around, and they began to listen to the serpent, and they began to say to themselves, well, you know what? We don't want to be the guests. We want to be the hosts, and we want to be like God, and we don't want to be stewards. We want to be owners. And so they begin to grasp and claim and take control of their own lives in their own world. It's a lie of ownership. The people of God, we see, are being warned here by Moses. He says, be careful when you come into this amazing good land. It's like an Eden 2.0. Did you hear all that stuff? Honey, pomegranates. What a great smoothie that would make. You know, sorry, that's... Sorry. Um, and, yet, and yet, he says to them, when you begin to experience all this prosperity, be careful because, verse 14, your hearts will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out and gave you all of this. This is, this is a law of the earth, my friends, that as you experience wealth and prosperity and abundance, wealth always creates spiritual amnesia. Or you begin to forget. You forget it was the Lord who gave all this. It was the Lord who entrusted it to you. It was the Lord who even gave you the ability to create wealth. All of this belongs to God. Nothing you have or nothing you are belongs to you. And you might say, well, hey man, I've worked really hard for what I have. It is mine. I've worked hard for it. Well, I would come back at you, my hypothetical argument partner here, that where did you get the ability to make that money? Well, you say, from my talents and my gifts. Well, where did you get those talents and gifts? Well, from my good genes. Well, where did you get your good genes? Well, from my parents. Well, where gave you your parents? Where did you get that? See, it doesn't work. Everything you have is a gift. I guarantee you that if you were born in the 13th century on a mountain in Tibet, I don't care how hard you work, or how talented you are, or who your parents are, you will be dirt poor. Because there are no bootstraps that anyone can pull up themselves. Everything you have, even the place that you were born, even the parents that you were given, even the particular neighborhood that you were growing up in, everything is sovereignly ordered and sovereignly designed by our triune God and given to you as a gift. We have earned nothing, we own nothing, everything is given to us and belongs to him. And yet we believe this lie. It actually belongs to us. Another really pernicious lie is the lie of scarcity. You know, Genesis 1 and 2 and all of creation is meant to be this generous gift from God. And God promises to care for his people and abundantly provide for them so that we lack nothing. 
And yet, sin enters into the world and human beings are always prone to doubt God's promise of abundance and instead begin to believe the lie of scarcity, that there's never enough and I gotta take care of me and my own. And so you can see God subtly warning of this in our Deuteronomy text. Look at verse seven. He says, the Lord God is bringing you into this good land. And then he just goes and he lists all this amazing stuff. And then he says, verse nine, a land where bread will never be scarce and you will lack nothing. He's promising them. He's saying, look guys, you're gonna have everything you need. You're gonna be always taken care of. Even when life feels a little scary, you can trust me and believe that I'm gonna abundantly provide for your needs. And yet again and again, God's people do not trust him. Adam and Eve don't. They begin to say, hey, yeah, okay, he's given us this great garden, but what about that tree? I think he's holding back. I think we need that. I think we need that fruit. We better take care of ourselves. God's people do it. He brings them out of Egypt. They're in the wilderness. They begin to say, oh, maybe we can't trust God to take care of our needs. Maybe we need to take matters into our own hands. Even after they get brought into the promised land, they begin to say, "Ah, maybe we can't trust him in all these promises that he's made. Maybe we better actually make uh, agreements with foreign powers and build idols to pagan gods. See, God's people again and again do not trust that God will provide. Scarcity isn't a lack of resources. It's a mindset that says God cannot be trusted. There's not enough. I gotta compete with others and take care of my own. And let me tell you, friends, once you have bought into that lie, you can justify almost anything. Almost anything. Because you begin to realize you need to protect your own interests and that leads to envy and fear and greed and anxiety. And in the end, that can even lead to anger and even violence itself. And so you see what happens. It's not hard to see what happens when these two lies begin to enter into the hearts of human beings, that we were made to be image bearers who are just enjoying the generosity of God, sharing the generosity with the world. But when we buy into these two lies, we just become like a shrinking shadow of who we were meant to be. A friend of mine who's a pastor told me about um, a couple in his church who came to him in great distress um, because their child had not gotten into an elite preschool in their community And they said, look, if our kid doesn't get into the right preschool, then he won't get into the right prep school. If he doesn't get into the right prep school, he won't get into the right college. And if he doesn't get into the right college, then he will not have the right networks and he won't be hired by the bankers in Charlotte. That's where they lived. And if he doesn't get into the right job and the right networks, he won't find the right spouse and he won't be able to take care of them and his kids and and he certainly won't be able to take care of us when we're old. Now, you know, we sort of laugh at that, but y'all, we live in the West End of Richmond. And so I hope that some of that feels a little familiar to you. That we too operate from that mindset of ownership and scarcity. That we too believe that we've got to take matters into our own hands. That our life is our own. That we've got to take care of us in our own. That we are competing with the people around us. That we've got to abide by the measures of success that the people around us have set. That we've got to push everything we can to secure our life and our future for ourselves. And do you see what happens when we buy into the lies? Instead of the joyful, generous people that God has made us to be, we become fearful, worried, angry, competing shadows of what God made us to be. I don't want to live in a world like that. Do you? So what do we do? Well, here's the good news. The gospel. The gospel is that the host has come among us to restore the party. 
That's the gospel. The host has come among us to restore the party. That God himself in the person of Jesus Christ entered into history, entered into among us in humanity to restore what was lost and to reclaim the party for his people again. So Jesus Christ shows up to people just like us, people racked with worry and fear, trapped in self-preservation and doubt, hoarding and greedy, refusing to give away because we think we need it for ourselves. He comes among them and he says stuff like this, you know, I tell you, don't worry about what you will eat or drink and don't worry about what you will wear in your body and look at creation, look at the world around you. Do you see its abundance? Do you see with his teaching, he's combating the lies. He's saying, look, you're not the owner, you are owned by a good father who loves you and owns all things. And you are not suffering from scarcity. Just look at creation. Look at all things. Do you not realize that you have a father who generously provides for all of your needs? Rest in his love. Be free. And so Jesus shows up and he combats the lies. He tells a better story. And then not only that, not only does he teach generosity, but he embodies it in the way that he gives his life for us. I love the way that Paul describes the gospel. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Isn't that amazing? The, tri- the triune God saw what we were doing to ourselves, doing to our earth, doing to each other. And Jesus Christ, the son of heaven, with all the inheritance of the father, decided to divest himself radically of all of eternal riches, voluntarily become poor, take our shame and sin, down into the grave in judgment and rise again for us. The rich Christ became poor so that we poor sinners might become rich. He says, I'm come back to start the party. Welcome back. Welcome back. Enjoy my inheritance. Richly receive my love and grace. And now extend that grace to the world that needs it. Jesus Christ restores the party and calls us back in. So friends, I just want to imagine with you in just a moment, just a moment here, what would it mean? What would happen to us if we began to be set free from the lies of ownership and scarcity? What would happen if the gospel really began to take root in us, Third Church, and we began a counter-movement in our society that is trapped in these lies, and we started a counter-movement and began to be people of Jesus, people of the kingdom, people who were living a different story? What would happen to us? Let me just make a few suggestions. First of all, I think that we would have a new vision, a new financial vision. Imagine you had a precious package to send to a friend and you called FedEx and some FedEx guy came to pick up your package and he took it and instead of delivering it to your intended destination, he took it home himself and ripped it open and just kept it himself. And what would you say to that? He said, what a terrible FedEx guy. You know, he doesn't know the point. I was giving it not to him. I was, he was a middleman. He was supposed to take it to the intended destination. It sounds absurd, right? And yet the, God, the, the Bible says, this is what humans essentially do, is that we were never meant to be the final destination of God's grace and blessings. We're just middlemen. We're middlewomen. I love what Yale theologian Miroslav Volf says. He says, we are not the final destination in the flow of God's gifts. We're midstream. We're middlemen, middlewomen. The gifts flow to us, then they flow from us. This money and wealth that has been entrusted to you, and I don't care whether you have a lot of money or whether you have a little of it, all of it has never, was never given to you uh, just for the provision of your own needs. It was always given to you so that you would be a middleman and a middlewoman and that you would be a vehicle of God's blessing for his kingdom purposes in the world. That's what it's for. 
I love what Randy Alcorn says. He says, abundance is not God's provision for me to live in luxury. It's his provision for me to help others live. God entrusts me with his money, not to build my kingdom on earth, but to build his kingdom in heaven. So you can imagine what would begin to happen to us if we begin to have this changed stewardship mindset. You know, we would go from thinking, oh, well, hmm, what will I give this year out of the goodness of my own heart? What shall I give unto God? You know, instead you would think, oh my goodness, all of this is God's. All of it belongs to him. Not just the five or 10%, but 100%, all of it belongs to him. How will I invest all of this for his good kingdom purposes in the world. You know this. If you serve on a board of directors, if you manage another person's stock portfolio, you know it's not your capital. It's not your money. You're always asking, how can I best invest this for the purposes of the owner? And friends, what are the purposes of the owner of your stuff? Oh my gosh, his purposes are amazing. He intends to build his church and to extend his gospel and to care for the poor and to renew creation. That's what the owner of your belongings is up to in the world. Will you use what he has entrusted to you, not for your own little kingdom, but for building up his kingdom on the earth? I have a new vision. Second, I think another thing that would happen to us is that we would have uh, a new freedom. There's a story about John Wesley um, that I guess is true, that one time he was preaching and a guy just kind of ran up and interrupted him and said, Mr. Wesley, Mr. Wesley, terrible news. Your house has burned down. And Wesley paused and looked thoughtful and then he said, well, it's not my house. It's God's house. One less responsibility for me. Now, when I read that, I was like, dude, you could have like at least asked if your wife and kids and dog were okay, right? <laughs> right? I mean, it sounds a little sanctimonious, a little pious. Um, and and I'm, maybe he did. That was just not recorded. But anyway, uh, the point is, the quite powerful teaching point is, is that John Wesley had deep inside his soul the mentality of the steward. That he really did believe that nothing that he had, nothing that he owned, actually belonged to him. Actually, John Wesley, we know by the time he died, he was a reverse tither. He was keeping, he was just using 10% for his own living and giving 90% away. That's how radical he had this baked down inside of him. And so when, I, I'm just saying this, that when you begin to develop this mentality of a steward, it actually gives you a freedom. That there's a lightness. There's a, 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 almost a, I would almost say a spiritual detachment from your stuff. That you just feel like, you know, this has just been entrusted to me for a temporary season of time. You know, some seasons will be different than others. It begins to foster contentment that you can live more lightly with what you have, more freely giving it away. And it also begins to develop a greater freedom in your own generosity because you know that you're just so abundantly provided for and you don't need to worry about your own needs. Have you ever been to a cocktail party where there actually is two little hors d'oeuvres being served? And like, you know, the guy comes out with the bacon-wrapped scallops and everybody's like, you know, like everybody's like, it's like sharks on, on minnows, like trying to grab, you know, the few plates of bacon wrapped scallops that there are. See, that's a mentality of scarcity, but I'm telling you, the Queen's party, it was not like that. I'm like, I'm just going to let those bacon scallops go by because there's a whole other mound of them over there. You know, abundant generosity. And that's what the steward, that's the mentality the steward has, is you're just like freely able to give what you, anything that God calls you to just give it away. Why? Because you know, you don't have to worry about your own needs. Because you have abundant Father who provides for all that you need. It's a, it's a glorious freedom. Another thing that happens, I think, is that we have a new standard. Basically, how much, about how much we give. You know, we talk about the tithe in the church, and 
What that comes from is the Old Testament concept of the first fruit. Did you know this? This concept of the first fruit? Basically, if you were a farmer, basically everyone was a farmer in the ancient world, all your income came at the end of the harvest season, right at the end. You wouldn't know until the very end, after you sowed and you tilled and you've waited and you've harvested, you wouldn't know to the very end of the season what your ultimate profit margin would be. Um, and, and actually, no one here is a farmer, I don't think. And yet a lot of you kind of operate in the same way. Um, I know this because um, I know you. I mean, a lot of you, it's funny because we're giving our 2020 faith commitments today, but a lot of you don't know what ultimately you'll make in 2020 because a lot of your income is based on your investments. Um, some of you are in real estate. Some of you work on uh, commission. Maybe you're an artist um, and you don't know what kind of gigs you'll get. And so a lot of us don't actually know what the ultimate outcome, the final harvest will be. So how does that affect our giving? Well, it completely does, doesn't it? Because our inclination is to wait until we know at the very end how much we're going to make, and then we know how much we can afford to give away. God says, "Mm -mm, not my people. He says, I want you to give the first fruit, the first 10%. Can you imagine being a farmer in that fragile ancient world, having no idea what the coming year would hold in terms of weather, in terms of production, in terms of harvest, and bringing the very best of your first 10% right into the altar and laying it down. Can you imagine how crazy and scary, yet it was a sign that this belongs to God and I'm going to trust him for the year ahead. And so that's what stewards do. If you wait to the very end, you're operating with a scarcity mentality. I got to wait to see the books. I'm only going to give out of the surplus. But God says, no, I don't want your leftovers. I want your first overs. I don't know if that's a word, but say it today. I want, I, I want you to actually give it away like those farmers that like carves into your lifestyle, uh, that makes a dent in your desires. Maybe you can't eat out at all the restaurants you want to eat out in or buy the stuff you want to buy. Because you know what? It isn't until then that we give out of our first overs rather than our leftovers. It isn't until then that we really begin to get it. Oh, it all belongs to him. I'm giving him the very first and best. And now I've got to trust him that he is the abundant provider that the Bible says that he is. So we have a new standard. Finally, stewards, I think, have a new joy. A new joy. I love what Jesus says. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He's saying, of course, very wise. He's saying that your money will always flow the direction of what you find the most delight in. Your money always flows to what makes your heart happy. Does that make sense? So, like, for example, great World Series this year. Was it not? Fantastic World Series. Now, amen, brother. I hear you there, Nats fan. Now, how many of you have no interest at all in the World Series or in baseball? Oh, my gosh, the majority of you. That's so sad. <laughs> Let's just say one of you who had no interest in the World Series a couple weeks ago, somebody comes up to you and says, hey, you want to buy a ticket to the World Series? I got a prime ticket to the World Series. You want to pay 25 bucks? Yeah, you'd say, okay, yeah, sure, 25 bucks, not, not, not too bad. How about if he says it's 1,000 bucks? Would you buy it then? Mm, probably not. Why? Because your heart's not in it. Your money flows to what your heart desires. Now, on the other hand, let's say that you are a crazy, kooky head 
Nats fan, like Mr. Justin here at the front row. Let's say that you have been rooting since 1924 for, the, for them to win the World Series. Let's say you're really old, you know, and you're, you've been rooting every year since 1924 for them to get to the back to the World Series. Well, then what would you pay? Would you pay 100? Oh, you bet you would. Would you pay 1,000? Oh, you bet you would. Would you pay even more? Do you know how much a couple of tickets we're going for this week on StubHub? 20 grand a piece, my friend. Do you think that those people were thinking, oh, what a sacrifice. What an obligation. No, they were thinking, what a delight. I get to see my gnats play and win and Scherzer take them down. It is a delight. The money flows where the happiness lives. And friends, this is what happens to the stewards. The stewards, through Jesus, have been brought back into the party. And the host, oh my goodness, he is love. He is love. And so the, the steward begins to delight in the king and the king's economy. So your money begins to flow to where the king is, and your money begins to flow to the king's people, and your money begins to flow to the king's causes, and your money begins to flow to the king's mission. Why? Because it's a burden? No, because it's a delight. You are enjoying the party, and you want to delight in the happiness of the king. So that's what we're going to do now. We're coming to the table, and you know, this is a special day, because not only do we get to do this together, but this is the weekend of All Saints Day, and we celebrate it on Friday. And what that means is, is that this table is a preview of that great wedding feast of which many of our brother and sisters are already attending, right? Here we eat the hors d'oeuvres. There they eat the feast. There is one church on earth and in heaven. We are in the same congregation. We sing in the same choir we eat the same bread. We live by the same Lord. We eat on this side of the table, and they eat on the other side. But for all of us, Jesus is the host, and he welcomes us in to taste his abundance. So would you come today to the table, to this foretaste, this appetizer of that, mighty, of that final feast, and would you see Jesus here welcoming you, saying, come and taste my abundance for you? And then would you be fed and turn and share that abundance with the world that needs it? Let's pray that Jesus does that for us today. Let's pray. We do pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us as we come to this table to taste your joy, to taste uh, the joy that you have in setting the table, setting the party, hosting the feast, and that we would come and receive it with happy hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.